Hello. Hello. How are you? Hi, Dan Benjamin. Everything uh, good up there? <clears throat> oh, yes. Things are great. Uh, Seattle is great. Do you put any stock in uh, importance of numbers or value in numbers? You like a, like when it was like eleven eleven? Were you like that was like a big day for you or anything? No, because we're on no. episode one thirty three and three is repeating numbers repeating. That's usually a auspicious sign of something. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll I'll mark anniversaries like five hundred. Or 200, like sure. 200 I, year I, anniversary would be a big deal, I would think, for anyone. I recognize the uh, the significance of, of numbers. I like prime numbers. Um, Can you list all the prime numbers between zero and 500 for us? No. Okay. Um, 133 is a um, octagonal number. It's a um, a Harshad number. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a happy number. Happy because we're doing the show together. No, it's a a happy number is defined by any number that starts with a positive integer and replaces the number by the sum of the squares of its digits in base ten. Oh, of course. Then repeats the process until the number either equals one or it loops endlessly in a cycle that does not include one. Mm-hmm. That's a happy number. It's a semi-prime, which uh, is a product of two prime numbers, namely seven and 19. So that makes it a semi-prime. Mm-hmm. But those primes are Gaussian primes, and that means that the 133 is a Bloom integer. Bloom? Blum, Blum, yeah. Jeff Goldblum. I think you would say Bloom, but uh-huh. but but spelled Blum. Uh huh. Mm. So I mean, that's how I feel about one thirty three. It, uh, you know, like the USS Pillsbury was um, DE one thirty three. That was a destroyer escort during World War Two, named after uh, the Doughboy. That's right. A doughboy being a nickname for an American <laughs> serviceman. I'm sure. So, but but in general, like, I'm not numerological. I don't think numbers are, like, they're not guiding me in any way. I don't think, like, oh, it's the, it's 117. That means that I shouldn't, like, wear pink or something. What about you, Dan? Do you, in all of your quirky, nutty, little uh habits and features do you also i mean i know that you knock on every door three times before you enter why well, i'm i take offense that you referred to my uh, habits as little oh, uh but me. but um little yeah I mean little I meant grand okay but um yeah you know like i i don't i don't respond to certain numbers as having a, a significance or a value but yes in my uh, OCD world, if I had to repeat something, which occasionally I might have to do, there I would have to do it four times oh. if I have to do it. Like, for instance, what? Um, like if I, if, if I felt as if 
I needed to check that a door was locked, I would have to check it four times if I was going to check it. I rarely have to do that kind of stuff nowadays. But in my in the heyday of my OCD checking behaviors, uh-huh. everything would have to be four times. Now, it doesn't, it's not what you're thinking. It's not like I would be sitting in the chair and I'd walk over to the door and check it and then walk back to the chair and sit down. It could be four times in rapid succession. Oh, really? Like yeah. if you, it, it would satisfy you to check the lock, check it, check it, check it. Yes. Exactly like uh-huh. that. Exactly oh, so like that. Interesting. So it's not, you check the lock, then you go and you're like, did I check the lock? And you go back and check it again. Well, you could just check it four times. I, each time that it gets checked, there's four sub checks. Of whatever it is. Yeah. Because so, so it might very well be exactly what you said that, wait, did I check it? Maybe I didn't check because, and that's the whole problem with OCD for, I don't, you, you don't have that. Do you You don't have any OCD? Do you? No. Okay. So good. Um, well, well, you've got enough issues. I feel like there are people have a hard time putting a name to, I think this is true of a lot of sort of, I don't want to call them. What would you describe it? Would you say that it was a disorder? Would you say disorder? Well, that's what the, that's what the D in obsessive compulsive disorder stands for. So I would say, yeah, it's a disorder if you have it, but But like, you know, know, there's, there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between the person who's like driving to, to work and they're like, Oh crap. Did I, did I leave the iron on and you get back to your house and you see that you did in fact unplug the iron, but like, you re- mm. versus the person with OCD who's like, oh crap, did I leave the iron on? And they drive all the way back home and they realize that in fact the iron has been where it has been for the last two weeks, put away with the cord wrapped up upstairs in the cabinet above the towels. Right. That's the difference between someone with OCD and somebody who just maybe thinks they forgot to unplug the iron. Right. Uh, the, it's it the the crux of the issue for the people that I know with the kind of I know there's lots of different kinds of OCDs. There's the kind where people have repetitive thoughts um, or invasive thoughts or, and I, I know someone like this um, and, and she'll have, she'll have invasive thoughts and the thoughts are usually disturbing thoughts too. Like maybe, although she would never harm someone, she might have thoughts of like, what if I like, threw a brick at this person's head or what if I jumped off the roof right now even though they they don't really want to do that these thoughts are very invasive I don't have and have never had anything like that for me it's always been about really checking things as they would have related to security personal security mm-hmm. uh, especially when I was a younger kid and probably feeling very insecure uh, not about myself as a person, but like through all the moving that we did and the divorce and everything else that my parents had and who knows what else contributed to that. Um, that, you know, checking of things was, was always my like MO. So the, the thing, the way it works with OCD is you could walk over to that, that door or window or back door or whatever it is that you check light switch make sure light switch is off i'll use that one sure and you can be standing there in the room with the light off 
you can look and see that the light is off. It's off, but you still want to check the switch. Well, why do you need to check this? Well, what if it's not really off? Uh Or what if I think that I turned it off, but it's slightly on and it's on just enough for a little electrical circuit to arc and set something on fire, killing my whole family. It's my fault that I killed the whole family because I didn't check it. I need to go check it. And you could be in bed. You could be driving away from the house. You could be just in the other room trying to watch TV. It doesn't really matter. And these thoughts become... So in that sense, I guess they're invasive thoughts, but they're connected to a specific a specific thing. And and so, of course, you, you want to quell that. So you, you get up and go and check it again. And of course, it's off. It's never on. Or another one is, that I used to have a lot is like, I'd be driving away and be, well, did I shut the garage? And I could remember shutting it. I, you know, you hit the, hit the garage door button in your car. You watch the thing go down. I'm like, okay, I shut it. It's shut. But then right. as you're driving, you're like, oh, crap. I remember shutting it, but was that yesterday when I did that? Was it two days ago? How do I remember it? What do I do? Well, now, well, Dan, now I got to drive you, back and check again. How do you live with this? Now, I'm very different than the way that I used to. Yeah. Um, but it, it, you know, there are people for whom they can, they can just never leave. They never can leave the house because it's so bad that they can't, they can't leave or they can't function. And then there's other people who, you know, maybe they have to check something a few times just before they go to bed. And if they do it, they have their little routine before they go to bed and it's fine. And then, and so basically they, there's like a, the, the check or the test for how, um, how severe it is, is does it, does it interfere with your daily quality of life? And if the answer is no, maybe you spend, you know, three minutes at night before you go up to bed, just walking through the house and checking things, double checking them. If you can do that, then it's, is it a big impact on your life? No. So, and that's kind of where I'm at now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a long time where, and I, I think I've told Merlin about this on back to work, but when I was about 10 or 11 is kind of when it sort of peaked. And I had this stupid, okay, so I had one of these cool desks. I wish I still had this desk, but it was a corner desk and it had attached on the left and right, uh, like dressers with shelves on them. So the whole thing together in a room was really cool because like you had this cool desk and you had a place for all your stuff. But of course I, you know, I wasn't, all my stuff was everywhere because that's the way I, I was. And I would have, you know, papers and my Dungeons and Dragons books and, you know, homework and whatever else. And under the the desk had a glass uh, top to it. And, but you know, underneath the glass, attached to the bottom of the glass were these little, there was four of them or five of them in the corners. And uh, and they were little green felt circles little sticky circles that would stick to like the glass and then keep it from the keep the glass from being stuck permanently to the wood or whatever so you could lift it off to to clean it or move it or whatever it's a little piece of felt on the glass between the glass and the wood of the desk and i had this stupid and you know like how do you get in this situation in the first place i had this little horse it was this stupid little black horse that i always thought looked like the black stallion 
from that movie. Do you remember the movie, The Black Stallion? I do remember The Black Stallion. And, uh, and the book. And so in, it was kind of like that, but it was rubber instead of, you know, this cool, like, majestic statue like the kid had. Right. And it had a, it had a, a gimp leg. It had a bum leg, probably because the way that it formed when it was, you know, being made before it was put into the little plastic ball and into the 25 cent machine. It's how God made it, how God wanted it. And so it wouldn't stand like it, it would stand, but after a period of time, it would sometimes just fall because it was, it had, it was lame. Like we said, we can't use the word lame. It was a lame horse. And so you could like bend the leg to get it back. And by the way, this, this is, I'm remembering something that took place maybe 32 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you could bend the leg back so that it would stand straight for a little while, sometimes for a long time. So I, but I had to position this stupid horse over the little felt dot on the glass and have it standing so that its front hoof would be in the center of this stupid little felt circle on top of the glass. But of course, of course it wouldn't want to stay there because it's got a, a bum leg. So it would fall over. So you get, get this thing situated and you go in, into your bed and you'd be laying down and you'd be starting to fall asleep. And then you just hear, I don't know if you, Mike is picking that up. Hold I on. heard it. Yes. You heard it. Which is the sound of the horse now falling on the glass. And I had to get up and, and put the light back on and position it again. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing that like it makes absolutely no sense. And then mm. the other thing is like I would I would have to and you know, but like real life things contributed to to my feeling of needing to check things. For example, the um the my mom had gotten remarried and she was only married for I don't even think she was remarried for two years, but um the guy that she had re- gotten remarried to was a very nice guy. Um but he was he was kind of like he was kind of sloppy and 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 and, and kind of careless and kind of like didn't really like he he if 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 he was getting some ice from the ice maker in the fridge and a piece of ice fell out of it he just like kick it under the fridge now in 2018 i might kick the ice under the fridge once in a while but as a kid this was this was a sin for me this was like you're like a grown up. You can't do that. Like the, the, it's just going to be under there now. What's going to happen to it? It's going to melt. What's that going to do to the floor underneath it? You're like, you can't, you can't do that. But what he would do is he would go out fishing. And uh, we lived in Florida at the time. And there was a, fishing was quite abundant in Florida at that time, even more so than it is now, because there was so much less development back in the, in the eighties and the early eighties. So there were tons and tons of just miles of land and and lots of piers and lots of docks and lots of wonderful places to go fishing. And I had gone fishing with him a number of times, but when he would go fishing, he would go fishing for many, many, many hours at a time. And he wouldn't, you know, the fish aren't biting really, John, until one or two in the morning. That's just, that's when they're biting. That's when the fish are biting. So he would go, he would leave the house at like 10 to go fishing. 
and he'd be gone and he'd get back at, you know, one or two in the morning. And when he would come back, there'd be all kinds of banging and noise and things dropping and falling over because he was kind of like clumsy and kind of oafish. And like the, then he'd have to, you know, you get your fish. I don't know how much you've done fishing in Florida, John, but you got to clean the fish right away. See? So then there's all that. And there's all that noise of cleaning the fish and whatever else. And that, so that's, so not only is he getting back at 12, one, two in the morning, this is when I was about 10 or 11 years old, but he's also making a ton of noise. And the worst part of it is not only wouldn't he clean up after himself, but he'd leave the door unlocked. Sometimes he'd leave the garage open. Sometimes he'd leave the door open. Now, we lived in a what, what I would say was a, a, a low traffic kind of a neighborhood. It was kind of out, kind of on the, on, the, on the edge of that part of town. I wasn't really, you know, realistically, I think we could have left our doors and windows wide open for years and nothing would have happened. But it didn't matter. That really bothered me. So on the nights that he would go out fishing, I would be like laying awake and like, well, when's he going to get back? Okay, maybe I'll, you know, I'll fall asleep. And of course, I'll wake up when he, and so I would have to wake up. And for the hour that he's sitting out there banging around and bumping around, I'd have to sit there and wait, wait for him to finally go to bed. Then when he'd go to bed, then I could go out and I'd lock everything up. I already had this OCD thing going on. So it made it, amped it up to be worse. So in that case, I think it just fueled, it just fueled the fire into what later became something that did affect the quality of my life so that I had to, you know, I would check things a lot. I would check things constantly and, uh, and then, and it would always be four times. So if I was going to go check the door, I would check it and be like one, two, three, four. Okay. That's locked. I think, wait, did I just lock that? Or was that yesterday? Or is that an hour ago? Has someone come in since then? Did I go in? What if my brain is playing tricks on me? What if I didn't really lock it? What if I unlocked it? What if I thought I was locking it, but I unlocked it? I better go check it. And that is the cycle of, uh, I remember I watched a documentary that was very helpful for me at the time, but I watched a documentary on like obsessive compulsive disorder and all the different kinds and everything. And this was, I was probably a teenager and there was one guy, I felt so bad for this guy, who he had OCD pretty bad. He was almost like housebound from it. And he had this small, like, you know, you have those little refrigerators that you can put like in your, in, on, on your deck or something. It's like a, a pint-sized refrigerator. You could fit like maybe two cases of soda in it or something. And he had one of these in his, you know, in his like, in his a small studio apartment. And he was checking it constantly, like every 30 seconds, because he was convinced that his neighbor's cat had gotten in there and was suffocating and dying inside of his fridge. And that how would he explain that to the neighbor? Would he go to jail for it? Would he get in trouble for it? And, uh, and so like the, the reality of it is his neighbor's cat had never left his neighbor's house, uh, apartment. It had never been in his apartment. He would just somehow he fixated on this one little thing of like, and, and it ruled him. It dominated him. He couldn't function because he had to check this fridge. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a real thing. We would like to say thank you very much to Audible. It's the time of year when everyone is thinking about gifts, right? The holidays coming up. 
What are you going to get? People who seem to have everything. Well, you can get this for your friends, but actually, you know who I'm thinking of? I'm thinking about you. You should get something for yourself. Give yourself a gift. And in this case, it's the gift of Audible. An Audible membership is awesome. And they have a really, really good offer going on right now. You get access to the unbeatable selection of audiobooks. It includes bestsellers, motivational books, mysteries, thrillers, memoirs, and more. And just think about this. It's the holiday time. You're going to be doing a lot of traveling. And sometimes you're by yourself, sometimes you're with your, your spouse or your friends or your family. I'll tell you what, nothing, ma- listen, all of you have these cars with the DVD players in the back and you wind up putting something on for your kids. And what are you doing? You're not doing anything. And seriously, your kids need to be staring at a TV even in the car. Come on, you can do better. You could use Audible and you could get a book that all of you would like and you can all listen to it together. This is awesome. Or if you're traveling on your own, of course you want to listen to something and I'm, I'm not going to knock podcasts, but sometimes it's nice to listen to someone read a book to you. It's awesome. You can choose three titles every month, one audiobook, two Audible originals, and you can't hear these anywhere else. You can listen on any device, anytime, anywhere, at home, at the gym, on your commute, when you're traveling, anytime. And that's the, the same thing that you get from a podcast you get from an audiobook in the sense that you can do something else, like be at the gym or do the dishes or whatever it is, and you can just let your imagination go along with the story, pay attention to the story, and, and, and get lost in that in a special way. I love, I love Audible. So here's how it works. For a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for only $6.95 a month. This is more than half off the regular price. So give yourself the gift of listening. And while you're at it, think about giving it to someone on your list. You can find out more by going to Audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E. I I mean, everyone should know how to spell it by now, but that's how it's spelled. Audible.com slash roadwork. Just visiting the URL supports our show. Or you can text the word roadwork, one word to 500-500. You don't even have to use a browser. You don't have to go anywhere. You just text roadwork to 500-500. And so, you know what? I'm going to start with something basic as a recommendation. I still feel like the Harry Potter audiobooks are some of the best that you're going to hear. The the, uh, narrator of those is amazing. And it's something you can listen to again and again yourself. It's something you can listen to with your family, almost all ages. Check out any of those. They're so good. So that'll be my personal recommendation for this one. And uh, go check it out. Again, the URL, audible.com slash roadwork. And I hope that you enjoy listening to these books as much as we do as a a family. So what do you think? I don't have uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, no. 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 Although I did uh, recently have a very satisfying moment, which uh, which was when... You know, I sort a lot of things. I sort, I sort nails and tacks and uh-huh. things. Yeah, and I have a couple of jars of like random, assorted, paint-covered, rusty nails. Mm-hmm. Why? Why would you save those? 
well, every once in a while I'm doing some repair job on a thing that's old and I go into my little rusty nail jar and I find sometimes the exact right patina on a nail. Mm-hmm. And then when I, when I fix the old piece of furniture, the, the repair is invisible because it doesn't have a bright, shiny nail. Okay. Okay. I never would have thought about that. Or a See, nail with the wrong size. Right. Head. Right. I just, I feel like at a fundamental level, using an older nail for anything, it, like I, I don't know. I feel like that's, there's, but now I hear you say it, I guess it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I, I was repairing a shelf, uh, you know, a, uh, a piece of furniture, mm-hmm. some shelves, I guess is what you would call it. And it was shelving. old. Yeah. It, it had been, um, it was a piece of built in shelving that was in a home owned by our friend, Byron Coney. The home was built in 1890 and he took out the shelving and I said, well, those are perfectly good standalone shelves made at a time when one beautiful wood was plentiful, mm. made by made by expert craftsmen. Because mm-hmm. his house is a, it was a grand home, and these were like basement storage shelves, but still made better than anything you could get today. So I built little. Uh, I put it on a base, uh, and it it wasn't on a base because it had been built in. And in building this base, I was I had salvaged enough old wood that I could build the base out of the correct wood but I didn't have the right nails, Dan, until I realized I did have the right nails. So that's not the same as checking a door four times. Right. I get teased a lot for sorting old nails. But if you didn't want to sort the old nails, would you be compelled to do it in an unstoppable way? You're absolutely right. No, I would not. Like to the detriment of (laughs) other activities? I would not. You are correct. Um, I am free of that kind of, uh, compulsion. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever my, uh, whatever, whatever my peculiarities, they do not rise up to the level of disorder, mm-hmm. I think is what, mm-hmm. is what we've established. And yeah. I am very glad. So, so glad, so grateful that you are healthy now and not worried about kicking a a chip of ice under the refrigerator right but that you are um for me it's more like okay living in the light bedtime i'll just make sure everything's locked up that's about it yeah that's nice have you considered have you considered the internet of things have you considered putting all of your doorknobs onto uh, electronicals yes. so that you can sit in your bed and, and open your phone and lock them all at once? Yes, I would love to do that. Uh, but um, my wife does not want... She hmm. she would like to get rid of all she technology. Like electricity, right? She doesn't like electricity. She doesn't like electronics. She doesn't like Wi-Fi. She doesn't like having something. And, and on this, I agree with her. Uh, except in maybe the, your suggestion, which is she doesn't like taking something that is a straightforward, simple mechanical process, such as locking a door and complicating it by, uh, uh, you know, connecting 
now some kind of technology to it. The fact that like the, um, the Apple TV remote, which has a little trackpad on it. I mean, she can use that fine, of course, but she would much rather it just be like a regular old remote. Even that, you know, is kind of pushing the limits. Right. So how are you going to, um, how are you, Mr. Technology, mm. uh, going to reconcile that with, um, with the fact that your wife is um, like Better Call Saul's older brother? Chuck, Chuck. Um, I just just watched that last night. Um, well, that's a, the the way that we have been is just simply by not adding the kinds of cool technology stuff that I want, um, or that that technically I want, but there's real no real reason to have. Mm-hmm. Is there not though? Mm, I would say there isn't. Yeah, I mean, I I'm. I'm thinking more and more about this internet of things. Mm -hmm. I was extremely suspicious of it. I don't like it. When I walk under power lines and I hear them buzzing and popping and spitting, I become concerned for the, for my cellular structure. Yeah. Um, but I have been doing some research, you know, it is possible to have a, um, to have a wired house, but one that is not, really cloud based. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm really, I'm searching out a way to have a, a self-contained, this is the, this is the, the problem, right? You want it to be, you want it to be self-contained. You mm-hmm. want it to be, um, in uh, like a closed system. So the Russians can't come in and hack your nest, but also you want to be able to control it from your phone, mm-hmm. which requires that it go, out into the world, at least somewhat. I don't know. I don't understand the technology. I know there are people that do, and I should just have them come in and tell me, tell me what to do, but I'm having a good time trying to figure it out for myself. Not a good time. I guess I wouldn't say good time. I'm not having a good time doing it, but it is an interesting time. Do you believe that the Macintosh company, um, has your, best interests at heart? Absolutely not. Do you think that they are being truthful when they say they are trying to protect our privacy and not collect unlimited data? I, I believe what they, I believe what Apple says about how it collects and stores data. I believe that that is true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when they say that they don't save personalized data, I believe that based on what I've read uh, about them, what I know about them. In other words, I believe they're being completely truthful about that. And they also do other, uh, they claim to, and I believe, again, I believe them that they use other techniques such as like creating static. In other words, false, false data that prevents it from being connected to an individual person and uh, other things like that. I think, I think that's all accurate. I think that they do that. However, I'm not, um, I don't, I, I don't believe that they have our best interests at heart. I think they have their best interests at heart. They're a commercial company and they're, I, I don't think that, I don't think they think of us as their product or our information 
as their product, which is absolutely what Google thinks and beyond a doubt what Facebook thinks. I think both of those companies are absolutely about data mining us and selling that data in any way that they can, in every way that they can. We, we know a lot of that to be true. I don't think Apple, that's not their business. Apple wants to sell us phones and to a lesser extent computers. And so anything that is conducive to them making those sales, they're going to do it. That's why we have the App Store. That's why we have iTunes. That's why we have Apple Music. Uh, that's why we have all of those services. It's not because Apple thinks they make the world a better place. It's because <clears throat> they make they make an ecosystem around their products that's better than the other ecosystems. And that in turn leads people to want those products and buy them and get them and use them. Oh, you're blowing my mind here. Yeah. So, but I think that what they say about privacy is true, right? You're asking the wrong guy. I'm just worried uh, that my nest is listening into my phone calls. I don't have a nest. Or, or rather, I do have a nest. Somebody, uh, I got a nest at Christmas one time, but it's still in the box sitting somewhere. Mm-hmm. I haven't, I was afraid to uh, plug it in because I didn't want it to like, um, you know, change my, change the settings on my oven or whatever, whatever I was afraid it was going to do. But now I just, yeah, I've, I've come, I've come full circle. I'm looking on the, I'm looking on the interwebs. I'm saying, how do I get? How do I get this wonderful new, this wonderful new world to be to be my wonderful new world, mm-hmm. where I can just pull up my phone and and I have eight video cameras surveying my entire house and yeah, yard. Yeah, I want. That's exactly what I want. I want to be able to like if someone's walking through my yard, I want to be able to um, to say, "What the fuck are you doing?" In a really quiet voice, right in their ear. Yeah, that's a, like, that's wanna, the dream. I want to do all this stuff and I, and I, and I believe it's possible. So, and I, and believe me, if I had OCD, I mean, it might be a problem, right? Because then you would be able to just look at your, you'd be able to look at your, at your backyard like 6,000 times an hour. If that was your particular preoccupation. Right. I don't, you know, I'm not concerned and have never been concerned with like, is someone in my backyard? No. I mean, I like I'm, cons- you know, the fact that, well, yeah, no, I don't want anyone just in my backyard. No. But that's not like a thing that's on my mind. No, you're not stone tripping about it. No. Like you are about doorknobs or irons or whatever. Right. You know, yeah. okay, okay. So, 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 um, you know, how, uh, weed can make you a little paranoid. I mean, I have no knowledge of this, but in theory, I've heard that. And weed can, you're saying, yeah, weed can make you a little, a little paranoid where you start to think like, oh man, what if, what if like the cops like are like right outside, like they, they're going to come in here and like find us smoking weed. Like that kind of irrational fear, that is kind of the feeling of, of the, of the OCD checking, the thing that makes you want to go in and check stuff. Uh-huh. It's, it's that kind of like, well, but, and like it makes perfect sense to you when you're in the moment, but rationally, you know, it's not true. At a rational level, you know, you check the thing or you know that that window hasn't been opened for six months, but you get to check it anyway, because that's like, that's the thing you do now. Yeah. Yeah, that's not, uh, 
that's not how I'm going to live. No, you can't live your life like that. Living, I'm living in a new way. Living in a living in a way that has less weirdness all the time. Less weirdness every day. Less less weird than the day that came before it. I don't know if I can honestly say that. I don't even know if I'm trying to do that. I think you know a little bit of spontaneity went out of my life in uh, the last year or two. I'm not exactly sure how. I think I hunkered down a little bit. Okay, but I'm, I'm bringing a little bit of spontaneity back. I'm taking some. I'm taking some uh, frivolous trips. I'm. I'm. Uh, I was talking to a, a friend of mine the other day who's thirty, mm. and I said, "Listen, thirty-year-old, I don't know what any of the bands are anymore, and I don't really care. But when you're going to a cool show, call me up. Tell me right. that you're going. Right. Because." I, I mean, honestly, I will probably say thank you and, and not go, but I'm, it's, it's disturbing me that I'm not going to any cool shows anymore after decades of going to cool shows. So don't, and then I, then I amended it. I said, don't just call me anytime you're going to a cool show, just the coolest shows. Mm. And then my 30 year old friend was like, yeah, gee, that's what I need to drag you to my coolest shows. I was like, don't, don't sass me. Don't backtalk me. <laughs> so we'll find out. Bony Bear is playing tonight. Not one of the coolest shows, but apparently it's a cool show. And I'm just debating like, Ugh, do I want to like put on my coat, go down to the show, stand around, watch a show? I do mm-hmm. kind of, I should probably, but But I need more spontaneity in my life, Dan. I need to. You know, I was thinking about that as you were talking, and I was thinking that you know, you. I think maybe it's the podcasting. I think it's your podcasting schedule because you got you've got this show, you get the show with Merlin, you got Ken Jennings, you've got the, uh, the 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 war movie one. Yeah, friendly fire. Friendly fire. Thank you. And this is you know you have a schedule. And that's what you were telling me. Was it a few months ago? Maybe more. God, I can't even remember. (coughs) Sometime in 2018, you were saying that, you know, now you have, it's not really a job, but it is like a job and that you have these things that you do on regular days and regular times and you show up and you do them. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time in your life still, I guess, that you've had something quite like that. Yeah, that's true. That's a, that is a good, uh, that's a good observation. It's, um, I do have regularity and maybe that's at odds with the the spontaneity. I think it is. I think you're right. I, you know, I, I think it's a, a, a fairly familiar adage that money does not solve problems or make it solves everything. And up to a certain point, I think, I, my mom quotes this research to me all the time, and I'm not sure whether I, I, I have not independently confirmed this. The seventy thousand dollar thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that up to seventy five thousand dollars a year, earning earning more money than fifty, it does actually improve the quality of your life up right. to seventy. Right. And after seventy, it does not. Uh, like earning more money past that point does not add to. And in, in many cases, detracts from the quality of your life. Right. Um, 
but you know, the last year I've been, I, I have felt very much on the cusp of earning more money than I was earning before. And it's not like the normal feeling of like, this is the year I feel on the cusp. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't just, um, dream money. Like I was doing two new podcasts, both of which were popular. And because I had two podcasts I was already doing that were, that were popular Mm -hmm. and they were earning me money. Mm -hmm. I figured these two new podcasts, which were also popular and from a listenership standpoint, bigger that they were also going to earn me money. But of course those two new shows, both of them were not independent podcasts like the one I do with you and the one I do with Merlin. Right. They were podcasts that appeared on networks and because of that relationship, the network relationship, um, the, the intricacies of that, of those relationships, those two new podcasts have not earned me any money Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they've quadrupled or quintupled the amount of work I do every week. Sure. Um, and you know, and I'm, I'm creatively excited by them. I enjoy making them, but all year long I've been in this very strange state where I've, I I'm doing tons and tons more work and, uh, and haven't increased my income at all. Um, and so it's a, it's a strange, it's a strange disconnect emotionally and mentally because everything I'm doing suggests that I would be able to take some of the financial pressure off of my life, right? Like, Buy, buy a car, buy a car that doesn't catch on fire. Right. Um, or get a bank to loan me enough money to ha- have a, a mortgage on a new house, get right. a new house. Right. And this year I sold the GMC RV. Yeah. I sold a handful of guitars, um, expensive guitars, you know, that I'd had for for 25 years that weren't expensive when I bought them, but were expensive now. Um, and that was all just to get money together to pay off my debt. Mm. Right. That didn't making that money didn't help me or I mean, you know, getting that money didn't like put me into a different realm. It just, it just was to, to pay down what had bit, what had become credit card debt that I was, I was running up to, to keep me going. Cause there was a, Last year and the year before, I, I, I didn't earn very much money. So, so now we're we're coming into 2019, and I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, well, both of my new podcasts are are established now. You know, they're they're popular, and and maybe 2019 will be a will be the year where the networks that I'm, um that those shows are on find a way to capitalize on that listenership mm-hmm. and make and earn money for the people that are making the show. Um, but again, that's a thing that all this year I've thought all this year I, I, um, 
I just kept putting eggs in that, in those baskets. And so I don't, there's not a clear path in 2019. I'm again, I'm just sort of wishing into my wish bag because I don't see that either network is actually doing anything differently Yeah, in terms of making those shows profitable. And, um, that's, um, you know, that's been like a tumultuous and, and I think a, a big part of that is that I don't have control on this show with you. I call you up and I say, what's our plan? And you say, here's the plan. And I say, yeah, I know that's what you say, but what does Hattie say? And then Hattie <laughs> says, here's the plan. And then you go, oh, apparently Hattie has a plan. Yeah. And then I go, great. And between, you know, between you and Hattie, there's a business operation mm-hmm. at, that is, that is, uh, that's very close to me, right? I can, I can contact my partners and get a clear answer. And then, and, and then I say, well, why don't you put that in an email and send it to me? And it arrives, it arrives like within an hour. And so I, I don't feel disconnected from the business. But these other operations, you know, I send an email and th- four days go by and then there's a reply and it's kind of, it's, you know, just a, a, a reply that gives me no, nothing concrete. And so I write back and go, well, we should, you know, we should kind of try and drill down on this. And then they're like, well, why don't we hop on a call? And I'm like, ah, I don't really, that's not very productive. And Oh, no, no, no. We'll get everybody in the room. We'll hop on a call. We can hop on a call. Everybody on the conference call all talks about what a great job they're doing. And, and I say, yeah, but well, you know, it's weird. We're not making any money. And they go, oh, well, it's about to change. It's about to change. Which is uh, like the podcast equivalent of the checks in the mail. Yeah. (laughs) And so I, we sent it last week. (laughs) I feel like super, um, you know, my fate isn't in my hand, although I'm, it's still, it's the same work. It's creative work that, that I and my co-hosts are doing independent, right? Nobody, we, we don't require any money. Nobody's funding us or, or the, the work, the actual work we're doing is just as independent as, as road work, right? I mean, we're completely autonomous in terms of <clears throat> making a thing. It's just that right. we take that creative output and we hand it to someone and say, now take this and run. And they're companies, they're, they're companies. And so then the, then what we hand them goes into their, into the mist of their office and who, and we, there's no transparency. I can't say like, let me sit down with all the people that are supposed to be generating income from these things and find out what they're doing all day. Because, I don't see the, I don't see that they're doing anything. Well, they're doing a lot. It's just that we have 45 other shows and their attention is divided. And I'm like, well, then that's a bad business model. Well, just wait and see. This is the year. So, you know, so I went to a bank and I said, I'd like to sell my house and buy a house that's closer to where my daughter goes to school. And the bank said, oh, well, based on your tax returns, it's very hard for us to loan you any money. And I said, yeah, but I've paid my mortgage payment on the house I currently own 
without fail. I've never, even during the depths of the mortgage crisis, when the whole country was coming off the rails, I never missed a mortgage payment. I was never late a day. That's got to count for something, bank. And they're like, it does, it does. How about, <laughs> if, how about if we loan you this amount? And they push a little piece of paper across the desk. And I'm like, well, thank you. That's very generous. But really, it's not very generous uh, given, the, you know, given like the fact that I have a 800 credit rating. That's got to count for something. And they're like, it does, it does. How about this amount? And it's just like. And this is because your your income comes from different sources and isn't like a regular paycheck that you get without fail every two weeks. There is no check that ever arrives in the mail that is the same as any other check. Mm-hmm. Like um, every once in a while, I'll get a $1,000 check from here and a $1,000 check from there. And you could ha- put them up next to each other and go, they're both for $1,000. But, <clears throat> you know, I'm in business with a dozen different people or more. Every one of them sends me some amount of money at some point in a year. Some, a lot of them send me money multiple times in a year. But that uh, those amounts are never the same. The time that the check arrives is never the same. It's never for the same thing. Right. So a bank looks at, oh, and also I'm in show business. So I, you know, I then take some of that money and I pay it out to subcontractors that are helping me. I do a lot of traveling as a result of, or as part of a component of my business. And so there are a lot of deductions of all the, uh, of all the kind of machinery of making the, the stuff that I do. Right. And so what the tax return, the story the tax return tells is from the standpoint of a bank, like, I mean, from the standpoint of where I'm at, you know, every, about this time every year, early December, I'm like, I did it. I made it. I made it to the finish line. Yes. But when I put that in front of a bank and go like, I did it, man. Check me out. I did it again. I did it again. <laughs> like I got there. Yeah. The bank's like, wow. <laughs> Sweet. Uh-huh. Um, but that's not really what we're looking for. Right. You I shouldn't mean, be, share, ha- you shouldn't be as excited as you are about that. We share your enthusiasm. Right. They say that you're, that you're making it. Uh, but, um, but you know, we like, we like it to be a little bit more chill, um, in this, in the sense of it being, you know, like, because my daughter's mother like makes a, makes a, she gets like a check every two weeks from her job and the bank loaned her money without even, they did not even hesitate. Uh, for a second because it was, I mean, it's why banks love to give car loans to people that just enlisted in the U S army. It's why you drive by any military base and it's, and you're just in a traffic jam of 2018 Mustang Cobras. It's because the banks go, Oh, we know this kid is going to be making a regular income for the next four years. Right. He's locked in. He's locked in and uh, he has to be a major fuck up to lose this money. And we also know that the military is going to hold him accountable. Mm -hmm. You can't be in the army and driving a new Mustang and miss your payments for long because, because the car company can go to a big daddy army and say, Hey, your guy's screwing up. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So banks love to, you know, to loan kind of onerous amounts of money to service people, but they do not like loaning money to guitar players. <laughs> at all yeah and and maybe podcasters maybe podcasters even less although maybe slightly more i mean definitely my income now is at least more i was about to say reliable but i don't think that's true i don't think it's reliable i think maybe what it is is that that i always felt back in the day anytime anybody handed me money i was like whoa no way Thanks. And now it's a little bit more like, uh, oh, well, you know, I, I knew that this money was coming and, um, and I know what this money, I know why I'm getting this money because I did this thing two months ago. And so it's not this constant state of like, wow, you mean that thing I just did like is also worth money to people? But I would, I would like to, the thing is that that at the beginning of this year, if things had worked out, even on the small side of what I had hoped, even if I had made, uh, from my two new shows, less money Mm -hmm. than I make from Roderick on the line and roadwork, it still would have enabled me to go to a bank and say, look, in 2018, things changed. And now I'm making a I'm making the argument to you that this is the new this is the new reality. And so, although I know you, if you look if you look back over the last four years of tax returns, you guys go, I don't know, what's this what's this line item here? And I'm like, oh, that's uh. <laughs> Yeah, every every once in a while, somebody gives me four hundred dollars because I leave a uh, outgoing message on their girlfriend's phone. <laughs> the bank's like, right? So is that a regular thing? Well, no, not really. It just happens every once in a while. But I could say, like, look, here's I have I have things booked. I have I'm generating a regular income. Um, like so, this could have been. This could have been the year, and and I'm. Uh, this is the first year I've ever had anxiety attacks. I never had an anxiety attack before, and and I've had a handful of them in 2018. What uh, what happens during the anxiety attack? Oh, they're just like normal anxiety attacks. I mean, I think what makes my anxiety attacks uh, like stand out is that I'm invariably, they are about, they generally lead to me being buried alive. I think my, I think a primary fear in me from a very young age was of being buried alive. And I can nowadays find in, I can find a mental path to, a scenario in which I'm going to end up being buried alive without, without having the normal sort of check and balance that I would have at any other point in my life where if I sat there and was like, well, what if I end up being buried alive? 
there would be another voice in my head that was like, why don't you think about something else? Mm-hmm. Or that's very unlikely <clears throat> moving right along. But, but in the last year, I haven't been able to arrest that. And it has, you know, it spiraled out of control a couple of times where I just started to feel the feeling of being buried alive. Although I was just sort of walking around my apartment all by myself. Yeah. Um, or, or worse, like sitting in a chair on an airplane and being like, it's not likely that you're going to get buried alive on this airplane. Right. 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 But I've just, I've walked myself through, um, through a chain of events. And it usually happens when I'm also, you know, when I have a, a, a like a, a cold and my nose is stopped up. Right. Um, like your I breathing just, is restricted. Yeah. I just yeah. get that, that, that restricted breathing claustrophobia. Yeah. But I can't fail to connect that anxiety to what's going on in my life right now. Why is this a problem right now? <clears throat> and, uh, you know, every week, and it seems like why would, you know, like I do, I do podcasts. Why mm-hmm. am I stressed? But, but I got, I, but I'm doing these things that I love, right? Like n- neither of the two podcasts that I started this year are things that I'm like, yeah, it's just not working out. This thing's causing me too much stress. I don't want to do it anymore. In fact, it's the opposite. Both things are like, these are great. These, these have added to the quality of my life a lot. Having these relationships with my friends, doing these shows that require research and, you know, um, like it's what I should be doing. But now I'm in this world of sending emails to corporate people and getting corporate emails back, talking to my co-hosts about what we're supposed to do. What should we be doing differently? What's our plan? Mm. All of us, you know, and, and eventually like we end up, we end up getting short with each other because we're so frustrated. That's just like, God damn it. You know, like, and then, you know, we realize like, we're not mad at each other. Why are we yelling at each other? It's not us. We're just trying to, we're just making a good thing. Why can't this turn into something? You know, and I keep saying to, I'm in that terrible position of saying like, well, I'll tell you what, Dan Benjamin seems to be making me money. And they're like, ah, <laughs> I'm like, well, it's not Dan really. It's Hattie, but, but it's happening. Yeah. We would like to say thank you so much to Cashfly. They provide all the bandwidth for this show and all the shows on 5x5. And you know what? I also use them for uh, Fireside.fm, the podcast hosting platform that I run. Uh, that's, that's how great they are. They're the world's most reliable CDN. Millions and millions and millions of podcasts are delivered from Fireside all through Cashfly. And of course, if you're listening to this show, it came to you over Cashfly's network. So if you're in podcasting like me or any other business whose customers want content that's always available and always fast, they want Cashfly. You want to use Cashfly. Imagine having your content a single network hop away from all of your customers from New York City to Hong Kong. And you can eliminate CDN outages because Cashfly has a solid 100% uptime SLA. You can learn more at a special URL they made 
5x5.cashfly.com. One more time, 5x5.cashfly.com. That supports the show and you can learn much, much more. It's time to check out Cashfly. Go check them out and we appreciate their ongoing support. So, so that, so there's all this stress, like, and it's not the stress of being, it's not just the stress of being somebody that doesn't make a reliable income that's always struggling. It's like, it's like I'm going out and playing shows and I'm on tour and I'm an established band and people are coming to my shows, but somehow the deal with the promoter was written in a, you know, written kind of in bad faith or written in a way, phrased in a way that I now am not getting paid at the end of the day. And the promoter's like, oh, dude, this, this tour is going great. People love it. You know, at the end of this tour, don't worry, I'll settle up with you. Or it's all going to, or at the end of this tour, we'll be really set up for the next tour, hmm. which is the shit that they say to you when you're just starting out. But like, if I were doing that now as a, as a rock musician, I would, I'd murder mm-hmm. because it's the, it's the oldest, it's the oldest trick in the book in rock and roll. And the thing is, I'm not just starting out in podcasting, but I am starting out or, you know, I did choose to put shows on networks and that was a conscious choice to like, well, maybe networks will help those shows get bigger and networks will have access to resources and the networks help the shows get a little bigger, not astonishingly bigger. Um, a little, but nothing where you can look at it and be like, whoa, being on a network just totally paid off, blew, blew us out of the water in terms of listeners and so forth. But what they, what the, what they don't have is like the resources to generate resources somehow. I don't know. How do you Mm -hmm. keep a business in, in business if you're not doing business? Oh yeah. I mean, you can't. I honestly don't know. I mean, they, they're keeping the lights on and they're keeping like dozens of people employed. <sighs> anyway, I mean, we talked about this at length on a, on a roadwork after dark where I got very specific about amounts of money that I was making. Right. Because on the after dark segment of our program, I feel like it's, there's, there aren't very many random listeners there. It's all, it's all friends. It's all friends. So someone wrote in and asked, how do you make a living? And I, just basically read off my bank statements for the last 20 years yeah. trying to explain like what, what the process was. Um, but I'm talking about it now more specifically in terms of like, uh, that I've lost a lot of spontaneity. I think you're absolutely right that it's tied to the extra work I'm doing. But it's tied also to the fact that the work I'm doing has increased my emotional stress in a way that's unrelated to the work. Right, right. It's not the actual doing of the work that's stressful. It's everything around it. Is that right? I'm doing freelance work. Yeah. And not being paid for it. Yeah. And that is the, you know, that's kind of the hardest part about being an independent artist but typically that's the kind of thing that like graphic designers or photographers complain about mm-hmm. that they do their work and then people steal it or they do their work and then people go wait a minute 
I was supposed to pay for this, you know, like people don't value the work of, um, I mean, people who are knowledgeable value the work of graphic designers and photographers, but your average person just feels like, Oh, I saw this great logo and I just took it. I figured it would work for my stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but like as a musician, you get taken advantage of a thousand ways. Right. But, uh, and, and that includes like, oh, I used your song in my, in my thing. I figured you wouldn't mind. I, I used your song in my podcast that has 200 listeners. I figured you wouldn't mind because it's good exposure or whatever. But, um, but never, it's, it's never felt like it does right now, which is just like, because I have, because I have a, a, uh, because I have something to compare it to, you know, I know what these shows should be earning and could be earning. And, um, and it's not that they're earning some like 20% less than that or something. They're essentially earning zero or negligible. And that's just because of some, because of something in, in the bowel of of a of someone else's business model. <clears throat> I had a good friend die yesterday. Um, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, uh, he died of drinking. And <clears throat> like liver, liver failure or actually just, I think, I mean, I don't, I, I haven't heard the details. It's terrible, but it's, um, but I don't think liver failure. I think he drank until he died. Um, either aspirating either from aspiration mm. or from, um, just like blood alcohol poisoning. Wow. And it's, it's hard to, it's hard to burble along in like life and be doing normal things. And you know, like if, if a friend of mine had died in a car accident yesterday, that's a thing that feels uh, as bad as it is. It, it would feel normal because we're all on the road and we all know the risks and it's all just, you know, any, every time you get in your car, something could happen. You can't predict what other people are going to do. Um, and heart attack or stroke or, uh, cancer. Those things are, they feel tragic, but they also feel like they're understandable. They're normal. It's just like, well, your body, um, like some flaw, uh, became fatal because we're delicate. We're sense, you know, we're, we're, we're not, um, we're not unkillable, you know, but to drink yourself to death is like the worst suicide. And it just, it feels unfathomable. I mean, we talk about 
drugs and depression on this show quite a bit, and I think about it a lot. And people, I, I, people still all the time, uh, normal like uh, like uh, regulars, like snorks, not not friends of mine. Most people know not to say like, "Do you ever think about having a drink?" But but I hear it all the time, just because it's a normal thing to ask. You know, it's a normal right because thing you're for- you're not doing something that they do, and they place a certain value or importance on, and they're trying to imagine what would it be like. I would want, I wouldn't, you know, I hear people who say that to me frequently, like, oh, I tried to do the whole 30 and I, 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 I could only make it four days without having a drink. And I'm like, like, I don't say this, but I'm like, wow, that's kind of weak. I've made it for several years without having a drink. And, but I, of course I would never say that because I understand that, that that's just my own personal privilege of not you know, not, not enjoying alcohol. So that's easy for me to not, but like, if you said, Oh, I haven't used my computer in 30 days. I'd be like, what, how do you not use a computer for 30 days? What are you doing? But they put themselves in that situation. I I think that's a fair question to ask, but at the same time, there's something weird about it too. Like it almost feels like, like rude to ask. What do you, what do you feel when people ask you that? I, it's it's a normal thing. I mean, I it's um it's certainly weird if somebody wants to f- wants to push push that question past you know the first or second answer, um because you do get you know you do just you meet assholes in the world. Yeah, they're like, but I mean, really, I mean, somebody said to me the other day, uh, a pretty good friend of mine. I was like, well, I mean, don't you think that like a bipolar, don't you think bipolar is just because you didn't have a lot of, um, like you had, you had a real like love hate relationship with your childhood or something. And that's like the kind of thing that turns you into somebody that can't tell love from hate or whatever. And I was like, well, interesting. That's an interesting, uh, theory. I put it right there in the, in the file folder with all the interesting theories that people have come up with that I'm that I pull out sometimes and read over, but no, I'm not going to use that take to decide whether or not I, I, uh, continue to take my bipolar medicine. Right. You know, that hot take isn't, isn't that hot. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff like that with, with um, alcohol and drugs too, where people are like, well, what if you just, I mean, don't, what if you just only drank this instead of that or whatever? Like, yeah, okay, great hot take. But, but it's moments like this where you go, because even, even me, I mean, I haven't had a drink in over 20 years and it does become a little bit unreal. Um, It's hard for me to remember exactly the feeling of um, I, 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 let me let me walk that back because it's not I can remember quite easily quite quite well the feeling of being fucked up I can remember the feelings of being ashamed I can remember the feelings of um, being miserable 
I'm, you know, the hardest thing I think is the hardest thing is remembering what it feels like to feel like you deserve it or to feel hopeless in a way that, um, where there's no path. And I see this sometimes when some, when someone uh, re- relapses and I've known them for a long time yeah. and then I see they're back in it and they see that they're miserable and what they cannot see from there is that they can't remember the path um, because they were on it. They got out and now they're back in it and from within it, they just don't see the, they don't see the road anymore because it's so much harder to get on that road again. But like my friend who died yesterday, uh, him, he's a person I've known for 30 years and have been fr- good friends for 30 years. Yeah, He's been in and out. He's gone to rehab a half a dozen times. He tried and tried. He was sober for a long time and then went off the wagon and then back on the wagon. And he did all that stuff. He tried all those things. And was succeeding, but he got hopeless. Yeah. And, and he didn't get drunk and hang himself. He didn't OD on, uh, on drugs because it could, and where, where in a way it could have been an accident. Um, he just drank alcohol. And he's a big, strong 50-year-old guy. Um, He just drank alcohol until it killed him. And what's kind of toughest to remember sometimes, it's in our culture, we put a, we put a real, we put a lot of virtue on being poor. Um, Being poor seems unfair. Rich people are um, are imagine it's imagined that they don't have real problems, and that real people problems are prop are poor people problems, and so rich people aren't sympathetic. Um, but this guy was rich. He he came from a well-to-do family. He married a woman who worked at Microsoft. They made a lot of money. He, he took that money and got into property development. You know, he's one of these people that if you read the, the leftist press, like he's a person that people wouldn't have very much sympathy for in Seattle or in the world. Right. What's he got? What's he whining about? Um, and he drank himself to death. I do think, I mean, this maybe is an obvious question, but did he know that's what he was doing or was it kind of accidental? You know, like, no. was he just doing his regular thing and eventually it, it was too much for him or he overdid it a little? Or do you think he was sort of like leaving Las Vegas? Like he, he went into this knowing what he was doing, wanting to do that. Um, I never, because I talked to him a lot through this period. 
and he was not, um, he was not like suicidal Mm -hmm. in, in the sense of, in the sense that he was like, I don't want to do it anymore, man. I'm just, this is how I'm going out. No, he was one of those guys that was caught in that, like this time I'm going to pull it off. You know, I'm going to rehab two days from now. And this time I'm, you know, I'm getting back on the, getting back on the straight and narrow. You know, he had three kids. He had a nice house. He had, um, and if you had, if you had talked to him, I think 10 days ago, he would have said, I've got everything to live for. And I'm definitely like getting back, getting my shit together. I just kind of have a couple of more things to work out first. And then went, uh, you know, and, and got shit faced. And, and, um, it's just that this is the thing about alcohol. You know, it's not, it's not that heroin is some kind of danger and alcohol is, um, is not like my sister and I had a really good friend last year, two years ago. And he'd been a, uh, he'd been a junkie for a long time. And I think we, we talked about it on the show when it happened, he was a brilliant artist and a incredibly sensitive guy and had been just struggling with drugs his whole life, our whole lives, you know, since high school. And he, and he had, you know, he'd fucked up bad, but he'd also, he also was a lovely dude and he hadn't done the thing where he'd stolen from all his friends. You know, yeah. he'd always kept it going and he'd been sober for a year, you know, uh, multiple times, multiple times. Um, and he relapsed and they found him barely breathing in his car. He just, he shot up in his car and they got him to the hospital, but he was dead. He was you know, he stayed alive for a week or so and everybody got to come in and say their goodbyes, but he was gone and he eventually <clears throat> died and he's hmm. 48, 49. Wow. But with that, it's like, well, you mess around with heroin. You know what I mean? Like every time you're, you're taking a risk that you're going to OD, but people don't think about booze that same way every time like um it's a dangerous it's dangerous if you're if you're addicted to booze so i'm so i'm wrestling with it because you know there are a, a couple of friends that were also close to him you know we've been talking about it and nobody really it doesn't the the thing is that that my community of people that revolve around this guy, they're not artists. And so they are not inclined to talk about their feelings. Nobody is making a commemorative plaque. No, no one is, no one is planning a gathering where we all get together and sing this guy's song. Right. You know what I mean? Like he was a business person and his friends are business people. And I know them from a different from a different side of my life that doesn't really connect to the, to the drug scene and the rock people. And you know, they're, and they're, they're like straight and he was a Republican even, you know, (laughs) like he, when I ran for city council, he donated 
to my campaign and he wrote something that was like, I gave you the money for your campaign, even though your politics are like the thing I hate most in the world, but you're a good dude. And I would be embarrassed if I hadn't, if I didn't <laughs> give to your campaign. So I think you're, I think you're an honest guy and you'll do as you'll do what you consider to be a good job when you're on the city council. But God, you, you you infuriate me with your hippie politics. And I was like, thanks, bro. <laughs> Thanks, man. You know, he gave me he do, he donated the maximum amount you right, could give to right. a, to a campaign, and uh, and at that time I was just grateful to anybody that was donating to me. But also, it was you know it was I thought an, a gesture, like a hilarious gesture, right? Where he's like, if you are elected to the Seattle City Council, every decision you make will directly hinder me in my in my right, own right, business right. as a property developer and like Seattle rich person but but um I love you man here's your money mm-hmm. so so I'm you know I'm I'm trying to navigate like the experience of of someone because for a lot of the, a lot of his friends and a lot of the people in his world like they don't know a bunch of people that have OD'd yeah you know, they're, they don't have the experience of like, oh, you know, we lost another one. And they couldn't understand what was happening when it was happening. They would call me, his friends would call me and say like, you're the one that knows about drugs and alcohol. Can't you do anything? Because this has been going on, you know, for a few years. Yeah. And I'd be like, look, man, I went to see him in rehab. Like I, I've been up and down with him, but if he doesn't want to stop drinking, I can't. Right. How can you, it's not, it's not like, you know, some magic secret that you just are neglecting to tell him. No, there's not an AA voodoo spell. Like I go in and tell him if he wants to stop drinking, I'm there. But if he doesn't want to stop drinking, I'm not going to like hold his coat. Right. And I, and for sure, I'm not going to like, I'm not his mom. I'm not going to call him up and wring my hands and be like, But, you know, you feel bad now. I, but the thing is, I could, if I had done all those things, it wouldn't have changed anything. Because his mom was wringing her hands. His, his friends were wringing their hands. And he's just like. It didn't, it didn't do anything, did it? No, of course not. But it's a, but it's a thing. You know, when, when, when I got the news yesterday, I was like, remember, like, I'm. I'm also an alcoholic and every day that goes by that I don't drink is, is a major blessing and all the struggles I have and all my problems and, and, uh, um, all the work I'm trying to do in the world, that is I mean, if I were drinking, I would be doing none of this. Yeah, for sure. I would be doing something else and way worse. Whatever it is, whatever, whatever I would be doing would be way, way, way worse. And, um, and I guess, you know, it, it, I never forget that, but it is easy to, to put it into this sort of because my because I live a, a a normal life I come home I put the key in the lock I go into my house you know that my house is messy but 
but clean. You know, I don't stand on the front porch and spend two minutes trying to get the key in the lock. (laughs) (laughs) And so every time I walk up and put the key in the lock and walk in the door, I'm not thinking, oh, shit, if I were drunk, that whole process would have been a lot more difficult. Mm -hmm. I have a really good friend that that very famously stood at his front door and couldn't get the key in the lock um, and just stood there and like, like projectile vomited on the front door mm. because he couldn't get the key in the lock fast enough to get in and go to the bathroom. He's just, stand- and so, you know, his wife came downstairs and opened the door and he's just standing there, door covered with vomit, st- key still in his hand, just trying to get it in the lock. It's like, I don't have to do that. I can just put the key right in the lock. But, but like, I'm not sure what the takeaway is when, when a friend dies, you know, at 50 years old, you have another group of friends die has been my experience when I was 24, you know, a bunch of people died and they all died of ODs or of accidents, Mm -hmm. big crashes, you Mm -hmm. know, big, big, dumb, young person, um, foibles, Like my sister watched a guy s- snowboarding in Valdez and he snowboarded into a crevasse. Really? And just like disappeared down into a glacier. And he was just gone. Yeah. Just shit like that where you're like, huh, well, that's what it is. That's what life is. You know, you're 25. Derp, derp, derp. And then there was a long period where nobody died and it just started to feel normal. Like we're, well, we all made it. I remember on my 30th birthday, my mom was like, you made it. You made it. And I was like, I did. I made it. I'm 30. I made it. She was like, you made it. You made it to 30 like you lived. All those times you shouldn't have, but you did it. And now you're 30 and you don't have to, you're not going to die like a dumbass. But at 50, you know, I've lost a couple of people close to me to suicide this, this last couple of years and to drugs. I think if you read about suicide, it's common at 50 years old, like 50 year old men in particular get to this point in their lives and they're like, what the fuck do I have left to give? Nobody cares about me because they, you know, they've reached that point where it just doesn't seem like there's anything else going to happen. But I think it's the start. I think it at 50 years old, it's the start of like, well, people are, you know, people are going to die now. Your friends are going to one by one kind of, you're going to lose a friend here. You're going to lose a friend there. Hopefully not to drugs and suicide, but like somebody's going to have a heart attack. Hopefully not me. But it, 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 uh, right now I'm in a frame of mind where I'm not sure what my, I'm not sure what I'm, uh, gleaning. Mm Mm-hmm from his life, from our relationship, from, from his decline, from, from his death, you know, it's not a reminder to me, you know, I didn't need a reminder. So what is it? It's just a, just a, uh, it's a personal tragedy for the 25 people around this one man. 
and their lives will have to go on. You know, it's not a like, it's not a tragedy in the world. No one was saved. 